You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, so good to be with you this morning, to have the opportunity to open God's word and learn together this morning. Well, we are continuing our series that we kicked off a couple weeks back, kind of walking our way through the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. That's kind of where we'll be camping out today. And uh, it's an amazing section of scripture, jam-packed with lots to talk about. But while you're turning there, let me just give you a bit of context about what's happening in around the verses that we're about to read together today. The book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. And this is the second book that Luke wrote. He wrote a first book, which is kind of a biography about the life of Jesus, where, where he walked through the miracles and, then, and, and the life and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then this second book that he wrote called Acts is a bit of a, it's the, the origin story of, of our faith. It's the origin story of the early church. It's called Acts or Acts of the Apostles. Essentially, these 28 kind of chapters are a glimpse into what the early church did, how they lived, how God used them. And the first scene, chapter one, it it opens just prior to Jesus' ascension. So this is after Jesus had died on the cross. He'd risen to new life. And then he spent 40 days with his disciples. He was eating with them and and teaching them and and, and healing and and doing all these sorts of things. And then before he ascended into heaven, he gave them these instructions. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. We just heard it kind of on the, on the video. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But then he also said, don't go and do this on your own strength. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit who will come on you and who will empower you to be my witnesses. And, and so Jesus ascends into heaven and he gives us instructions. And, this is, and then just as he kind of instructed, they do wait. They wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And that brings us to Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, or even if you don't, would you stand with me, if you're, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near near Cyrene. That's a mouthful. Visitors from Rome, both Jew and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll kind of unpack these verses together. Lord, thanks for, thanks for scripture. Thanks for this, this book of Acts where we get to kind of look into the first church, the early church, your early followers and how you moved among them. And as we look at these words today, I pray that you'd help them, us to apply them to our lives, to hear what it is that you wanna speak to us today 
on October 2nd in Coquitlam, British Columbia. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, one of the joys of this last season of life and ministry for me has been the, the starting of a community group. And every Wednesday night over the last number of weeks as we've gotten started, after we put my daughters to bed, Kinsley and Harper to sleep, we packed 12 or 13, sometimes 15 people into our little condo in Port Moody, and we do community group. We spend the evening talking about life and faith, and we laugh together, we share testimonies, we, we sometimes play games, we build friendships, and it's really been a joy for me and for, for Jorley, for our group. This, this last Wednesday, as we were sitting around and eating and drinking, we were, I think, kind of grazing on a charcuterie board and drinking bubbly water, and, and, and I, I started sharing with the group that I was going to be preaching on Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost. And as I was talking, Taylor, one of the girls in the group, piped up and she said, why don't we celebrate Pentecost? Like, we as CA Church, but also the body of Christ at large, the evangelical church, why don't we make a bigger deal out of Pentecost? Because it seems, that's a really great question, it seems that in Scripture, this is a pretty pivotal moment in the Christian story, in the Christian faith, that the whole trajectory of the church, of Jesus' followers, changed, pivoted at this moment 2,000 years ago on Pentecost. Sharing this same kind of passion for for Pentecost as my friend Taylor at Community Group, Daryl Johnson, a pastor and theologian from Vancouver, he said this, he said, the church of Jesus Christ will have really understood the gospel when, Pentateuch, or when, sorry, when Pentecost becomes as big a celebration as Easter and Christmas. Hmm. See, at Christmas, we celebrate God with us, God incarnate, Jesus coming to earth, putting on flesh and dwelling among us. On Pentecost, we celebrate God in us, where God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit, came to dwell on every follower of Jesus for the rest of time. On that first Christmas, God sent the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, the promised one, Emmanuel, on the first Pentecost, God's promised Holy Spirit came to dwell among us. And that's why the Apostle Peter, when he gets up to share a sermon and sort of explains those words that we just read on the screen, he quotes the prophet Joel. He's helping to connect the dots for the people who are listening on that day. And and he's saying these these kind of strange events, the tongues of fire, the, 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 the various things, the rushing wind, these strange things that are going on. He says, this is a fulfillment of promises from generations ago. We've all been waiting for this moment, and this is it. Look at verse 17. Quoting the book of Joel, this is what Peter says. He says, in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they'll prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of this great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Peter's saying, Acts 2, this event that we're experiencing right now, all the things that are going on, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. The pouring out of the Spirit of God on all people. See, prior to this moment in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God would come on select people for specific moments in time to kings or to prophets, as they led the people at specific moments in history. But at Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out on 
every follower of Jesus, men, women, children, the rich and the poor, slaves and free. There was no distinction. Everyone who called on the name of the Lord, everyone who confessed him as as God, who gave their allegiance to him became a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself dwelled in them, dwells in, in us. And if you've grown up in church, it's likely that you've heard this before. But, but, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you're one of those people in the crowd on that very first Pentecost. Maybe you're one of the travelers who's come from out of town to Jerusalem for the big festival that was going on in the city. And, and you experience, you see these miraculous signs and events that are taking place. They're miraculous, but they're also strange. They're weird. It starts with, with wind. Out of nowhere, this massive rushing wind kind of sweeps through the room where they're all gathered. It's kind of this hurricane-type winds. I have a friend who's, uh, who's in Florida right now, who's been in Florida during the, uh, the hurricanes that were just kind of blowing through there. They're okay, they're all safe. But he said, as they were kind of debriefing it, they said, well, it, w- it was crazy to be in the midst of that. The, the sound of the wind, as you were in this place and you could hear the wind blowing around, it's, this, it's crazy to be in the midst of it. And that's what's being described here as the Holy Spirit kind of comes and sweeps through this place, this rushing wind. And then... Tongues of fire rest on each of them. And there's not a lot of clarity in the text about the specifics of this, but a lot of scholars describe it as fire kind of resting just above or on each follower of Jesus who is in this room. It's kind of like what Moses experienced with the burning bush, where the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. This is kind of what's happening in that room. And then those people who who are in that group praising God, they begin to speak in all sorts of different languages. These are largely uneducated Greek-speaking Jews, but they begin to speak in all these different languages that they'd never spoken before. The crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem, gathered for this major festival, the the crowd was made up of thousands of people from all over the ancient world who spoke all sorts of different languages. And and they begin to hear these Greek-speaking disciples speaking in their own native tongue. It's quite incredible. But as you would expect, the people who were gathered there that day had various responses this. Some people were amazed. Wow, this is amazing. Others were perplexed, like, what is going on? Others made fun and said they must be drunk with wine. And it's likely that, that as you hear the text from Acts chapter 2 today, as, as we read those, that scripture together, it's likely that you have some of those responses, that various people here today come to the text with these types of ideas. If you're more charismatic, If that's where you're more bent, then you're probably like, yes, Lord, more of this. Would this be what our Sunday morning experiences look like? Others are like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what is going on? Perplexed, what is the meaning of this? And and I found that the Holy Spirit is is, is kind of the, the person of the Trinity that a lot of Christians just don't know what to do with. Like God as Father, I can kind of get that. We have human fathers. God as Jesus, God in the flesh, kind of moved into the neighborhood, I get that, God the Son. But God the Holy Spirit uh, is kind of like that weird uncle at Thanksgiving dinner who we don't talk to or talk about because we just don't know what to make of him. As we seek to understand this passage and get a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit, I want to look at some keys that Luke gives us in this telling of the story. Some images that I think are really helpful in understanding this critical moment in the life of the church. And the images are are wind and fire. Let's look again at verse two and three. Luke says, suddenly a sound like a blowing and violent wind came from the heavens and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, there's that word, that separated and came to rest on each of them. Okay, why wind and fire? 
When the Spirit comes, why is he accompanied by this violent wind and tongues of fire? Well, these two images have some deep connection to the presence of God all throughout Scripture. Both wind and fire, they show up time and time again, part and parcel with the presence of God. Let's, let's look at them one at a time. Let's look at first wind, and then we'll look at fire. And I should say, there's some work by Daryl Johnson that was so incredibly helpful in the kind of forming of these thoughts and ideas that I'm going to share with you today. In the original Greek, in both Greek and, or in the original Bible text in Greek and in Hebrew, the word used for spirit literally means breath or wind. It, it's, it's this Hebrew word, ruach. And you see it come up over and over again in the Old Testament, speaking of the Spirit of God. It literally means wind and breath. And then in the New Testament, which is mainly written in Greek, the words that, that's used for the Spirit is pneuma, which makes its way into the English language in words like pneumonia. And, and again, it, it means breath or wind or energy. All throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is associated with the wind. And even on a surface level, I think there's some profound things that we can learn from this imagery as, as it relates to the Spirit of God. I want to look at a few of them together. The first thing we can learn by looking at the wind is, is the wind refreshes. I don't know if you've been enjoying the kind of fall weather that we've been experiencing as much as I have, but it has been so amazing. And specifically, the cool breeze that's been sweeping through. Um, I think it's especially refreshing because of the hot summer that we just had, and, and many of our homes turned into heat domes, where it was so hot during the day, but even in the evenings, there wasn't even much relief. It was just so hot, but then we hit September, and you still have that sun, but you have this wind that's sweeping through, this beautiful, cool wind, and, and that's much like the Spirit. The wind brings refreshing, and so does the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit moves, the whole atmosphere begins to change. The sense of suffocation is broken. There's this new aroma that begins to surface, the aroma of this new life, this refreshment. The wind refreshes, but it also disturbs. Wind disturbs. Sometimes the wind, especially in a big windstorm, it kicks up the dust and the dirt, and sometimes it blows so hard that it knocks down, even uproots trees or foundations. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. The Ruach comes, and things are stirred up. Sometimes they're overturned. Structures and traditions that no longer kind of bring healthy spiritual life, they're swept aside, they're disrupted. And I really believe that's what the Spirit has been doing, even in this last season in the church in the West. It appears that the Spirit of God has been at work through the disruption of these last few years and, and, and has, has kind of disrupted broken systems and ideologies, calling his church into something deeper, into a deeper reliance on him. To use the language of Jeremiah the prophet, the Spirit's revealing broken cisterns, broken holders, jars that we've been trying to use. Uh, the renewing Spirit is moving. He's, he's bringing refreshment, but first he's unsettling the things that are no longer working. He's exposing idols in our own hearts. I know that he's been doing that in me over this last season, exposing things in our hearts, shaking foundations and making room for this new work of God. Another thing about the wind is that it can't be controlled. That's why Jesus' disciples, they were so shocked when Jesus said, wind be stilled on the Sea of Galilee, and instantly it stopped. It was quiet. It was still. Absolutely shocked. They said, who is this that even the wind obeys him? Who's this guy we've been following around? He's obviously not just a good teacher because no human can have the power over wind. The wind does what it will. It moves as it will. 
Because it doesn't matter how educated we are or how much we know about the wind. We can study how, kind of how it moves and its patterns, but, but we can't start it and we can't stop it. It can't be controlled. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. In conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said this. He was speaking of this life-giving work of the Spirit. And he said, the wind, the pneuma, it blows where it will. And you can hear it sound, but you don't know where it is, where it comes from, or where it's going. As much as we might try, we can't manipulate or force the Spirit to do something. The Spirit of God, he moves. He blows where he will. We can't organize him. We can't domesticate him. The Ruach, the Numa, the Spirit of God, just like the wind, it's beyond our control. And that's why I think one of the, one of the most important disciplines of the Christian life is actually waiting, waiting on the Spirit of God, the wind of God to blow Maybe I'll ask you this. What, what was the, f- the last commandment that Jesus gave the church before he ascended into heaven? A lot of people would go to, to Matthew 28 and say that his last command was to go. Go and make disciples of every nation. But that was actually his second to last commandment. His last commandment was actually to wait. To wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Look at, look at Acts, uh, or actually Luke 24, 49. Jesus says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Or then again in Acts 1, 4, wait for the Father's promise. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And I wonder if our effectiveness in ministry, if, if our effectiveness is directly tied to our willingness to wait, to not kind of struggle and strive in our own strength and, and, and just do a lot of Christian activities, but, but, to, but instead to wait for his leading. Pentecost happens while the disciples are waiting. And I should be clear, waiting is not a passive thing. Uh, this last summer, uh, we bought a kite for my daughter Kinsley. She had seen someone flying a kite. I think it was at Rocky Point, and she was obsessed with it for weeks and weeks. And so we were going on a vacation to Birch Bay, and so we picked up a kite for her on the way. And uh, the next morning on our vacation, we woke up, and, and I was so excited to teach Kinsley how to, to fly this kite, and so we unpacked it from the packaging and uh, I said, Kinsley, let Daddy show you how to do this. And so, uh, so we unpacked it, and I threw it up in the air, and I started to run with this kite. And it kind of got, got a little bit of air, and then boom, back down. I'm like, just give it a second. I did it again. I ran the other way, and I, I threw it up in the air and ran, and it kind of hit the ground again. We did that a few more times, and then kind of both a little frustrated. We're like, you know what, let's do this later. <laughs> so we packed it up, and I went inside. I think I put our, our daughter Harper to bed, got a snack, and I came outside, and Jorley and Kinsley were flying this kite, like as high as it could go, fully extended in the sky. And Kinsley yells to me as I'm coming out, Dad, you were doing it wrong. Mom knows how to fly the kite. <laughs> Mom knows everything. And after I finally swallowed my pride, I said, how did you do it? <laughs> and she said, oh, it was actually pretty easy. We, uh, you know, we took it out of the packaging again, and we just waited. We waited, and then when we kind of felt the wind blowing and we heard the wind, we just kind of lifted. Actually, Kinsley pretty much did it herself. She, she lifted it up, and the, the kite was kind of taken up into the sky. And it's the same way with the Spirit. We can strive and strive and strive, and we can try to get our, the kite up on our own strength. But the Spirit, of the, 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 what this text teaches us is that we should wait for the wind, for the Spirit of God to blow. And when we do, he will lift us into new heights of ministry and life. One author talked about it like this, talked about it like an eagle. Use the eagle to illustrate this point. I guess early in the morning, the eagle mounts on a limb of a tall tree, or sort of like a super tall rock. And it keeps its wings kind of tucked really close into its body. It looks passive, 
but it's as far from passive as it could get out. It's concentrating. It's testing the thermal currents that are rising up from the ground below. It's waiting, and it's waiting, and then at the right moment, it simply spreads its wings and it glides on the wind. No frantic flapping, just spreads its wings and soars. Isaiah 40, 40, verse 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Waiting does not come easy to me. I like to do. I like to be productive. I like to go hard, to, to take new ground. And that's not all bad. But there is this invitation from God that we see in in this story in Acts to wait, not to be passive, the least thing from passive, but rather rather than just doing lots of stuff, rather than just busying ourselves with lots of Christian activity, instead to wait on him, to seek his leading, and then to follow where he leads, to let the wind carry us. Have you ever felt like a flamingo or a turkey, just kind of flapping your wings, but not able to get any kind of wind or any air? Jesus says, Wait. Wait for that updraft, for the wind of God to blow and simply spread your wings and follow the lead of the wind. Maybe one of the most crucial questions for for the Christian life, for us both personally and corporately as a church, is where is the wind blowing? Where is God at work in our church, but also in our city, in our world? And, and And then let's follow him and join him in what he's doing because when we join God in what he's already doing, We stop from working for God and we begin to work with God. Not striving to try to muster something up or make something happen, but instead joining God in the redemptive work that he's doing on the earth. So going back to our our text in Acts chapter 2, Luke describes this mighty wind that kind of blows in from heaven. Uh, It kind of blows over the men and women who are gathered there. And then he talks about fire. He says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Fire. Again, Luke's tapping into this Old Testament theme that we see surface over and over again. God's presence is often accompanied by fire. For example, God spoke to Moses from within a burning bush. He led the Israelites across the desert with this pillar of fire. And when God kind of comes in and and he, at Mount Sinai, and he gives the Ten Commandments, Exodus records that the mountain was filled with smoke, kind of what we're experiencing today. The mountain around it was filled with smoke because it says that Yahweh descended on the mountain like fire. I think there's a lot in this imagery of fire that we can kind of understand that will help us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. Some key attributes about fire. The first is that fire illuminates. The light that the fire gives, it enables us to see things that we weren't previously able to see in the dark. The light that the fire gives enables us to see. And, and I don't think in the modern age we, we can quite connect as well with this, with this um, fire analogy as maybe in previous generations because we can turn on a light just with the flick of a switch. But in previous generations, before the invention of the light bulb, if you didn't have a flame, if you didn't have fire, then, then you, you pretty much needed to go to sleep when the sun went down. There, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't see anything because there was no fire. There was no light to illuminate the path. Fire helps you to see what you couldn't see in the dark. And it's the same with the Spirit. See, the fire of God, the Spirit of God, enables us to see things even within ourselves. Shines lights in dark places and exposes things that have been hidden. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. Sometimes he brings things to light that that were there all along, but we couldn't see it in the dark. And that might be sin in our hearts. That might be bad attitudes. This happened to me just a few days ago. Someone just asked me a question. 
really simple question. But, but I found that, that the question was very triggering for me, and I got super defensive, and, and right away I felt the conviction of the Spirit. God used that moment to illuminate some stuff in me, some pride in my heart, and some insecurities that I didn't even realize they were there until that moment where it came out and it was exposed in the light. The Spirit shines light in our lives, illuminates, not to embarrass us, but to heal us. Fire also purifies Amy uh, Carmichael was this incredible woman who lived in the, the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And she gave the majority of her life to, uh, to raising orphans in India. And the story goes like this, that one day she took a group of, of orphans to watch a goldsmith refine gold. And at one point in the demonstration, the, the goldsmith lifted a little piece of gold out of the fire with some tongs and, and, and he let it cool and then he rubbed it between his fingers He wasn't satisfied, so he put it back in the fire and he blew it hotter and hotter and continued to refine it. And as they watched this process in amazement, one of the kids piped up and said, how do you know when it's done? That the gold is finally refined. And the goldsmith responded, when I can see my face in the gold. See, the Spirit of God burns in us until he can see the face of Jesus in us. In Christian theology, we call this the the process of sanctification. The process of becoming like Christ. And sometimes this process can be painful as the Spirit refines us by fire and and, and removes our impurities and our imperfections. But he does it because he loves us. And he does it so we'll truly see the face of Jesus in us. It's God's grace towards us. Another thing about fire is that it spreads. I love this. Fire spreads, and it especially spreads when wind blows on it. One author said it like this, said that the chief quality of fire is its capacity to set other things on fire. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and sets people on fire, and then he uses those people who are burning to set other people on fire. And we see this in our text. On Pentecost, it starts with this small group of 120 people in the upper room. And by the end of that day, there's 3,000 people who are set on fire, set ablaze. 3,000 people commit their lives to Jesus in a single day. And throughout the book of Acts, we see over and over again, and even through the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit has this pretty simple evangelistic strategy. He lights fires, and then he blows on them. So if we lose our passion for evangelism, for reaching our friends and neighbors with the gospel, if we lose our evangelistic edge, the remedy is not just to do it anyway, to kind of passionlessly share the gospel. No, the solution is to say, Spirit of God, would you burn in me again? Would you rekindle that flame that I once had, that passion? Because fire starts fire. Remember, Jesus said, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on me, and that's going to empower you to be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, or we could say in Coquitlam, in Port Coquitlam, in Port Moody, to the ends of the world. That happens when, when that happened to the early church in Acts chapter two. The fire falls, and then the nations, all of them who are gathered there on Pentecost, people from all over Jerusalem and from the ancient world, they all hear the the the, the, the disciples speaking in their native tongue. Look at verse four. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. It goes on to say that the people in the city who didn't speak Greek, but they spoke other languages, they began to hear those disciples speaking in their own language. Okay, what's going on here? Well, I think there's a number of really profound things that are happening in this moment, but something that's really easy to miss. And I think this is something that the author Luke really wants us to catch in the telling of this story, is that Pentecost is this great reversal that happens. 
Pentecost is the reversal of, of what happened all the way back at the Tower of Babel. I want you to catch this. If you know the story back in Genesis chapter 11, the people of Babel were seeking to build this super tall tower to reach the heavens. And they said, if we could get to the vantage point of God, we'd no longer need God. We'd no longer need the divine because we could kind of be our own gods and goddesses if we could see, if we could be up at this level. And knowing their pride and their arrogance and what it would do to them and to one another, God confused them. He made it so they couldn't communicate, that they couldn't finish this project that they had set out. They all started to speak these different languages. No one could understand anything. It was mad chaos. See, their sin had brought division and separation. But get this, at Pentecost, it's this reversal where the Spirit comes down when he falls on the church and he brings order out of the chaos. Where sin and evil in the human heart had had kind of brought division and disunity, where, where Babel and the people of Babel were confused and unable to communicate. At Pentecost, the Spirit breaks in and unconfused them and empowered them to be God's witness in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. It's this beautiful moment where God is undoing the, 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 the curse of the fall, reconciling a fallen people to himself. It's this glimpse into the age to come where one day every tribe and tongue and people group will be worshiping Jesus together as one, where those from every nation and every language will join with the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, where creation will live in perfect harmony under King Jesus. It's this reversal. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground today, but as we close, let me just say this. From that very first Pentecost onward, the Spirit of God is this promised reality for every single follower of Jesus. When we put our our hope and our trust in Jesus, when we commit our lives to him, we're saved. And the Spirit of God, from that moment on, the Spirit of God lives within us. The Spirit is always with us. He never leaves us. And yet, we can lose touch with him. We can grieve him, the Scripture says. We can quench him. We can ignore him. We can forget him. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to go on a trip to, to London, England with a group of pastors. And we got to check out a number of different churches and kind of, uh, you know, places where great moves of God have happened. And one of the churches that we got to check out was called HTV, Holy Trinity Brompton, an Anglican church led by a guy named um, Nicky Gumbel, who you may have heard of. He started the Alpha program and popularized that. And as we were at uh, this church and spending time, one of the interesting things that they did in the service is every time they gather, they, they kind of, they create space, and they just pray this simple prayer. They, they pray, come Holy Spirit. And this is not specific to Nikki Gumbel. Actually, it's, it's one of the oldest prayers of the church. The Christians have been praying this prayer when they gather for centuries. It's maybe the oldest prayer rooting all the way back to Pente- Pentecost. But, but here's the thing. This, this prayer isn't implying that the Holy Spirit isn't already here. We know that he's God, that he's omnipresent, that he lives in each follower of Jesus. But in praying this simple prayer, come Holy Spirit, it's this awareness of his presence. It's this invitation saying, fire of God, fall afresh again. Oh, wind of the Holy Spirit, blow across this place. We submit to you. We submit to your ways. Come Holy Spirit. And so I just want to take a few moments today as we're gathered here and just to wait on the Spirit. And if you, like me, if, if you desire a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if you desire that the Holy Spirit would set us on fire again, that the wind of the Spirit would blow through us, revive us, and, and really empower us to be a witness in our world, 
Would you say these simple words with me, this prayer, come Holy Spirit? Maybe we could say it together if you're comfortable. One, two, three. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And then let's just take a few moments and wait on him. Maybe today he's gonna come and bring refreshment to dry hearts. Maybe there's things that he wants to illuminate in our hearts where, where, where he can expose it and we can find greater healing and freedom in Christ. Maybe today he would rekindle a fire in our hearts for those who are lost and wandering. But we say, come Holy Spirit. Come move in us, we pray. And then we wait. We just create space for him to move. And so let's do that. Just take a moment in this time and say, come Holy Spirit. Acknowledge your presence. Spirit of God, we recognize your presence with us today as we've gathered here to lift up the name of Jesus. We've gathered to learn and to grow. Spirit, I pray for those who who need refreshment, that your fresh wind would blow on them, that they would experience the refreshment that only you can bring. For those whose prayer is, God, light the fire in me that I once had. I want to grow and, and, and evangelize and reach the people around me, but I'm feeling dry. I pray that you would rekindle that flame. Bring refreshment. Illuminate things in our lives that are bringing separation between us and you. And set us ablaze. That the world would look on us and say, there is a God. I see him in these people. Move in us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.